And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Before I begin the sermon, let me echo what Troy has just said. When I came to town, Nora and Laura were freshmen, kind of shy and quiet. It has been a joy to watch the two of you and others of your class mature. You are fearless in singing at karaoke night or even to, to lead worship solo. Thank you for using your gifts. I've seen you develop your speaking talents and little shy, quiet Laura. The Lord says, you're going to roar. And, and others. I know there are many churches all across the world who would give their eye teeth 
to have qualified young people like this who are on fire for Jesus. And uh, it's a, a uh, attaboy to you as a church family, to you as parents for what you have done as uh, your children have matured. And so thank you for pouring into the next generation. It's, it's good to be your pastor. So how do I go from a comment to runs, drips, and errors? In softball or baseball, runs are a good thing. Depending on if you are on offense or defense, errors can be either good or bad. In stockings, runs are generally a bad thing, so I'm told. And when painting, runs and drips are errors. But what do we do when these things happen? In public speaking, we are um, frequently, commonly dealt with by characterizing the comment, the run, drip, or error, as it was an unintentional gaffe, or it gets walked back as a misunderstanding. But in situations where the comments cannot be excused as unintentional, then the comments are simply branded as fact-checked or fake news. What do we do when we are caught saying or doing something that was wrong? What happens when you crest the hill and you see the patrolman and you check your speedometer? What happens when the term paper or the sermon's quotes and illustrations are found to come directly from a plagiarized source? Today's scripture shows us responses and consequences for getting caught red-handed. When Adam and Eve were caught red-handed, the first thing they did is they attempted some sort of damage control. They attempted to make it look not quite as bad as it really was. Their first attempt at spin or damage control is disguise. You can't see me, therefore I did not do wrong. In verses 8 through 11, we read that they hid themselves in the garden. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 clearly says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We are living in an era where what generally is considered good is called bad. And evil is honored as somehow being good. We hide by disguising the characteristics of that very wrongdoing. There are times when we can either lie about it or we can hide, and Adam and Eve chose to hide, somehow to disguise the wrongdoing. 
Secondly, as they were caught, they tried to divert. If I can't disguise my wrongdoing, I'll somehow pass the buck. I'll push the blame off onto others. When they were found red-handed, as if they could ever hide from an omnipresent and an all-knowing God, they tried plan B. Well, we got caught, so let's shift the blame. And their attempts to shift blame were revealed for their weakness that they were. And God did not extend culpable deniability. You're trying to pass the blame, but God didn't listen to their flimsy excuse. He and she were culpable for his and her own acts of disobedience. But notice that God doesn't wait for them to come clean. God doesn't wait for them to verbalize an apology or to verbalize a confession. He knew they were guilty. They knew they were guilty. So the text moves directly into a sentencing phase. When the attempts to disguise and divert don't work, we then come to verse 14. And we saw that because of the disobedience, they were afflicted by curses. Now, you'll notice if you look in your Bible that it moves from the flowing verses of prose to the format of poetry. Notice verse 14 has shorter lines than we had in the previous paragraph. And by shifting to a poetry, what the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us is this is not just information for your head. This is this is intended to cause a visceral reaction in the reader. We're not just talking information about the curses. Our affliction touches us deeply. And I want us to experience the despair of hearing these sentences given for the first time, knowing that these sentences would be permanent. First, a curse is given to the serpent. Am, am I the only one who has ever heard the expression, lower than a snake's belly? Or, you dirty, rotten sidewinder? And, and so the, the stereotype of a snake is on the belly, on the ground. And while the Egyptian pharaohs like to wear headdress with the raised viper, most of us would tend to identify with Indiana Jones. Give me your torch. 
snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Asps. Very dangerous. You go first. And I am thankful that we have maggards and harshmans who would love to go first in such a situation. Because most of us, just that minute gives us the creepy crawlies. There's something about serpents that just doesn't seem right. And I believe that the chicken came before the egg, and I believe that the curse came before the reputation. Some animals conjure up thoughts of strength, of majesty, or of grace. But this explanation is as good as any other as to why the Hebrews had come to despise snakes. God said to the serpent, you will crawl on your belly. But he goes on in verse 15 to talk not so much about the serpent itself, but in the seed or the descendants. I wonder, is all or is none of verse 15 looking forward to Calvary? By the time of the post-exile, when the Hebrews, when, when the Hebrew scripture was translated into Greek, that was discussed in the Sunday school class this morning. By that time, 400 BC, when Hebrew was translated into Greek, the Greek translation called the Septuagint sees a messianic presence in verse 15. And by the time the Greek was translated into Latin, the Roman church even translated not he shall, but she shall. Hinting that there was some sort of an Eve and Mary correlation. Now there are some very specific words, and so without getting too bogged down, I'm going to move through these rather quickly, but it's important for us to understand the words so that we understand the meaning of the verse and the curse that falls upon the seed. We read that there is enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of Eve. Much of mythology and other religions see a cosmic battle between good and evil where both are equal powers. But the theme of Scripture is, is that evil is real and evil is at odds with the things of God. But hear me clearly. God's good is always greater or stronger than the badness of evil. The strife between good and evil is never a fair fight because goodness is always stronger. However, there, the evil, the conflict, the tension is real. For we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There is enmity, but you can take it to the bank that God's strength is greater than the temptations 
of evil. It talks about the enmity, and then it moves directly into talking about offspring. This word offspring, the Hebrew word is actually singular. But the singular is used some places in the Bible to speak either of one descendant, one soon descendant, or ultimately collective of one's descendants. So we really can't understand, we can't draw conclusions from the word itself. Is this talking about Eve's one son? Is this talking eventually about humanity that comes from her? I believe when we talk about seed, as in the seed of the serpent, Satan, and the seed of the woman, what we are talking about is those who carry on the purpose of the serpent or of Eve. See, Satan does not reproduce the way humans do. And so Satan doesn't have seed per se. But there are those who align with the dark side. There are those who align with Satan. Those who align with his purposes, whom Jesus refers to in John chapter 8, 44, as descendants of Satan. Now, when Eve heard this, I will set uh, anxiety or hostility between the serpent's descendant and your descendant. Eve naturally presumed God was talking about her son. When Satan heard this, he determined to have one son, Cain, kill the other son, Abel, to reduce the likelihood of this coming true. But this strife, this enmity, this hostility continues to this very day, does it not? Do you struggle with the temptations of evil? This strife continues until the day where Satan is bound, thrown into a pit, and later cast into a lake of fire. Until that happens, in the end of the book of Revelation, we, the descendants of Eve, live at hostility with the descendants of the serpent. Now, you'll also notice here in verse 15 that it, it talks about the, um, the bruising or the crushing. And different translations handle this different ways. Would you be surprised if I told you that the verb, the very word that is translated bruise or crush, depending upon your translation of the Bible, is the very same word? And so it's most consistent that if we choose the word bruise, we use bruise in both places. If we choose the word crush, we need to use the word crush in both places. The word actually means to, to grip strongly. And so it could be the crushing as you would crush the head of a serpent until the life drains out of it. Or it could be the strike of a snake that attaches to the foot. And so this word to bruise or to crush is actually the word to, to strike at or to attach or to grip or to squeeze. 
See, the difference between these two uses of bruise is not in the gripping or the striking, but in the position from which it happens. Eve's descendants would always strike from above, and Satan's descendants would always strike from the ground, looking up from a lower position. But when we get to the second part of verse 15, there's something that I want you to underline. And that is the word he. For we see that he shall bruise your head. This little pronoun, he, is in the masculine gender. The word seed or descendants is a neuter word. And while modern society wants to redefine gender, there are rules of grammar that work against this. One of the rules of grammar is that a pronoun always takes the gender of the noun to which it refers. And so when he is masculine, he cannot refer to the neuter seed. It has to refer to a singular person. Because the word for offspring is neutral in gender, it would normally be translated as it. So we could read this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and it or they shall bruise your head. But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say it or they. It says he, a masculine, singular person, which I believe points to our Lord Jesus Christ. I also see here that in the second part of verse 15, he, whoever this messianic person is, is not going to crush the head of the offspring. He says to the serpent, he will crush your head. See, I believe the first half of verse 15 speaks to the conflict between those who align with God's purposes and those who align with Satan's purposes, where God's people always have a position of strength. That's the first half of verse 15. The he and the your head, I believe, speaks to both Calvary and the ultimate doom of Satan in the book of Revelation. So I believe this verse has two different messages and we need to understand which one is which. I find agreement with Victor Hamilton, who writes, we may want to be cautious about calling this verse a messianic prophecy, but at the same time, we should be hesitant to surrender the time-honored expression for this verse. The proto-evangelium, the first good news. I believe the he at the second part of verse 15 is the first proclamation of Jesus who would come. Moving quickly, we also see that a curse falls upon the woman. Notice how all the curses upon women are directed at relationships, not tasks. The curse on woman is not dirty dishes. Or a messy living room. 
or an overflowing laundry basket. The curse upon woman is frustration between the home and the workplace. John Walton points out what is important to note about this Hebrew word for pain is that the root is not typically talking about physical pain, but mental or psychological anguish. He says, Eve, because you sinned, you will experience psychological anguish in your relationships with children and with the spouse. It talks here that you will have pain in childbearing and pain in bringing forth children. This talks about from conception until delivery. It's the whole process causes anguish for many women. To some, women experience great anxiety about the ability to conceive. And I know some of you have broken hearts about not having that ability. It's an anxiety that comes from disobedience. Some women experience great anxiety throughout the pregnancy, especially before Doppler and ultrasound became available to set one's minds at ease. Every time there's a a little twinge, the anxiety comes back. And some women, the anxiety goes through the roof when the delivery requires being induced or cesarean. What God is saying to Eve is your role as a mother will cause great anxiety moving forward. The second relational curse deals with marriage. From the suitable helper that we saw in chapter 2, who makes her husband better and partners with God's work in his life, we now have the blunt reality that you and your husband will not always see eye to eye. Can I get an amen? Uh, It's good to whisper that one. But the reality is, is we don't always see eye to eye. There is hostility in our desires and in our relationships. So we've seen the serpent, we've seen the seed, we've seen the woman. And then in verses 17 through 19, God curses the ground. He doesn't curse man directly. God curses the ground, which causes pain for the man. See, before the man can even offer a sigh of relief that his curse is diverted to the ground, notice that the impact of that curse is more detailed than any of the other descriptions. The serpent, one verse. The seed, one verse. The woman, one verse. Man's consequence, three verses. Because substituting the opinions of others for the true voice of God will always yield consequences. And Adam knew what God had said. Adam listened to what Eve said. And Adam substituted Eve's opinion for the clear voice of God. And so Adam had a price to pay. And the curse upon the ground means that man trades an existence of good land with no limits to a painful plodding through a life 
that will end. The difference between it is good, take and eat, to from here on out, it's going to cost you, bud. See, we, we do have food to eat, but it only comes through obstacles. I find it interesting that the fruit of the trees is now described that the food of man is bread. Bread is not like the ready-to-eat fruit that God provides. Bread only comes from patience, sowing, reaping, threshing, milling, baking. Man now cannot escape the reality that his life is coming to an end. And that life will involve hardship. It was over 15 years ago that my parents bought a house that they planned on for their retirement. Over the years, carpet was replaced with tile. Bathroom, additional bathrooms were built that were closer and meant you didn't have to wait for somebody else to get out of the bathroom. Landscaping was done in such a way that eased mowing. And the gardens were planted that did not require weeding. Mom and Dad did many things to the space to make it manageable. But this weekend, the house is for sale. And they have been accepted into an apartment complex. See, the, the inevitable downsizing is an honest admission that over time, we become feebler. And eventually, we can no longer do what we used to do. Eventually, we can no longer do what we thought we would be able to do. The reality of man is that age ends in death. And while this house that is for sale this weekend is not the home of my childhood, I am still saddened to consider that my own parents are requiring relocation because aging and death happens to all of us. And that was the curse upon the ground that every time Adam pulled a weed, he would be reminded this life ends in death. Because of man's disobedience, nature has changed, relationships are tough, and we have all entered a life that ends in pain. But even in our consequences of these curses, we can see the compassion of God. I am so happy of verses 20 through 24. Because in these final verses, we see that even though man has sinned, even though man has cursed, man is aided by God's provision and God's protection. Look with me clearly, beginning in verse 20. God provides a purpose for Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw that Adam needed a suitable partner and God provided woman. In Genesis chapter 2, woman is defined or identified in her relationship to man. Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's the way that he related to her. But here in Genesis chapter 3, she is honored in her relationship to children. Her reference from woman is changed to the name Eve, 
which means the source of life. Dignity is given to the woman and that her identity is not wrapped up only in her husband, but also in the life that she produces. See, to the, to the ancient historic Jews, pregnancy was simply just something that happened to a woman. But the biblical honoring position is that woman, you provide an essential contribution to this life. This life will not happen without your contribution. Now, I realize they've got test tubes and Petri dishes, and they're trying to do all sorts of different things. But the womb of woman has never been fully replicated in a lab because God said, women, you contribute something valuable to life. God not only gave purpose to Eve, God provided covering for both Adam and Eve. As the oldest of four children, I came to the conclusion that sometimes we're better than others to ask a favor of my parents. And seldom was that time ever the best time just after being disciplined. But just after God has said, cursed is a serpent, cursed is Satan, cursed is a woman, cursed is the ground, Adam's not about to ask for a favor, but what does God do? God provides covering for them. Rather than abandon them after their rebellion, God, the gracious God, makes for Adam and for his wife garments, and he clothed them. And God's garments did a better job covering than the gowns at the Academy Awards last week. Not only does God cover them, but God provided protection for Adam and for Eve. God's warning is no longer sufficient to prevent an unhealthy diet. Not unlike my doctor's cholesterol warnings. Dave, you need to cut that out. But barbecued and smoked meat is so good. And so God had warned Adam, don't touch that fruit. And the warning was no longer sufficient. So for their own good, God says, all right, I'm going to send you out of the garden, and I am going to place around the tree of life cherubim, or cherubs. You know, we, we tend to think of cherubs as a cute little baby with a bow and arrow in February. Or the youngsters in the nursery, or the children's choir. But cherubs, or cherubim, most commonly are portrayed in Scripture as the guards of God and His interests. You should think mighty Michael with the raised sword. Not little Cupid with the string bow. God placed these cherubs to guard what was important to God's purpose. And the sword-bearing cherubs could have prevented the PR nightmare that Will Smith is going through. Because sometimes we need to be protected from ourselves. And that's what God does in verse 24. He protected Adam and Eve from themselves by placing the cherubim to protect them from eating of that tree. I think, though, the greatest provision is that God provides a promise for all. 
Not just for Adam and Eve, not just for Eve as a mother, but for all of us. See, God prevented access while the first humans were in their fallen condition, but he promises access to the tree of life to those who are made clean in Christ at the end of time. Revelation 22 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Rather than being banished in our fallenness, God says, if you've been made clean in Christ, you have access to the tree right through the front gates. It's a promise for each of us. Now this message today is likely had not given you any new information. You already knew that serpents crawl on the ground. You already knew, at least on one level, that God... merciful nature of our God by extending His protection to our brokenness. From these protections, God's goodness amidst our rebellion, I find two primary applications. The first is, God does not wish for you to remain in rebellion and separation. God sent Adam and Eve out, but God does not wish so that you have access to the tree of life through the main gate. And secondly, God provides a covering for our exposure. God provides a covering. It's the Hebrew word for the atonement. And it was provided once for all when Jesus died in your place. We started this service by singing of God's amazing grace and his amazing love. Let us conclude the service by singing of his abundant mercy. Though my sins they are many, his mercy is more. Stand with me.